And thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name's Neil Hedden. Hey, bedheads. Welcome to the episode where we start talking trackers. Yeah, we've reached the stage in this project now where I'm ready to start testing out some sleep hacks and some sleep tips that I'm starting to get from other people. But the trouble with that is... I don't know if the devices that I'm using to track my sleep are responding with accurate enough data that they'll be able to pick up on the differences that I get from the various things I'm going to try out. So we get one of the foremost experts really in the world on wearables and sleep trackers, Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona, not only the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program, but also the director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic, an associate professor there, one of the heavyweights in terms of knowledge on this particular subject and a pile of others as it relates to sleep. You'll pick up on that over the course of our conversation. As you're going through this episode, do me a favor. Think of somebody that might benefit from hearing about all of this and send them a link to the podcast at thesnoozebutton.com. A lot of good information coming here from Dr. Michael Grander. Well, Michael, I'm glad that you and I finally get a chance to connect here because as I've sort of been making this evil plan in my head about how resolving my sleep was going to go, I knew there was going to come to me so far. (laughs) I knew there was going to come a point where I was going to need to talk to an expert specifically about wearable technology um and and all roads seem to lead to you so i'm grateful that you had a chance to uh to sit down and chat about this for a little while tonight thank you for making room for me no thanks i think this is an important topic and and something that might actually help make a difference with real people so i'm I'm happy to help however i can if I can be the bridge between uh, real people and wherever the heck on the scale it is I am, I'm happy to be that guy. Um, so here we go with the question that everybody gets, whether you're a neuroscientist or rock star or an astronaut, whatever you happen to be, everybody gets this question. Uh, Michael, how'd you sleep last night? I slept pretty good. That's all you got. I slept pretty good. No, okay, no, so no. Then, well, okay, fine. You want to be more of an answer? Um, get more I, granular. I yeah, put some meat so, on that bone. So, okay, some meat on the bone. So I, I'm a big believer in using sleep as an investment in uh, the next day. And so, you know, how much sleep do you usually get? Um, I, I usually shoot for seven to eight hours, usually between those two. And that's what I got last night. I went to bed um, a little later than I wanted to, but I was able to budget up enough time. Uh, I fell asleep pretty quickly. I remember one awakening during the night. It was a few minutes, went back to sleep, and then I got up in the morning to help the kids get to school. Um, I am not a morning person, um, so it took me a little bit to for my brain to actually wake up, but that's just normal for me. By the time I was ready to go to work, I was pretty good. Okay, so now I have a follow-up on that because sure. the, answer that I, the answer that I get back to part two of that question is, it's always different, and I'm fascinated uh, because every time I speak to a sleep expert, the range of answers on this is interesting. So on those nights when you can't sleep, when you yes. don't fall asleep right away, uh, yes. I'll give you a couple of examples. Mark Boulos, my sleep specialist, yeah, he falls asleep right away. Uh, um, um, Ravi Alada from Northwestern University, who we had on a yep. couple of episodes. I don't know oh, if you know awesome. Ravi. He's a, he's a great speaker, too. Yeah, and did this amazing study that we talked about a couple of episodes ago where he came up with um, a, a, a statistical correlation between jet lag and home runs surrendered by yep. Major League yep. Baseball pitchers. It's brilliant. Um, he yeah, told me paper. 
that when he can't sleep, he gets up and works. He gets up and actually starts responding to emails because he finds that relaxing. So on nights when you can't sleep, what do you do? Um, I So sometimes I have trouble sleeping because I'm human and that happens. Um, <laughs> the What I do when I can't sleep is... So I, I have a protocol that I follow. One, I try and see if there's an easy solution to this. So if it's something I'm worried about, I'll write it down. And then I'll tell myself the only useful thing I can do right now is write it down, and that's what I did. And I try and let it go. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. If, I, if I'm having trouble winding down, um, I'll go through in bed. I'll, I'll do this in bed because it only takes a few minutes. I'll go through sort of a guided meditation, something that's a combination of relaxation and a little bit of distraction to help get my mind off whatever it was. Um, and it usually only takes a few minutes. And if, if that's enough to do the trick, then I know sleep can be imminent. If, if I don't feel like sleep is imminent, I do exactly what I would tell everybody else to do, is get up. If, you, if sleep isn't coming, get up. It's not, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're not chasing after sleep, and you're, gonna, you're not going to find it. Get up, take a break, try again. Um, you don't want to have the experience of staying in bed for extended periods of time, trying to sleep and not sleeping. That's a recipe for developing chronic insomnia, uh, and that's why I, I don't do that. I'm, I'm actually really religious about it. If I don't fall asleep within 15 minutes, I'm probably going to get up. And then maybe maybe I'll, maybe it's only a 15-minute break I need to take. Sometimes it's maybe an hour, but then I'll try again. And it's not a, and I'll still get up at the same time in the morning because this was not about tonight. This was about the next day and the next night, and, and it doesn't set me off on a trajectory of problematic sleep. Linnell Schneeberg from Yale says that one of the best prescriptions yep. is a basket of books and a book light. Yeah, so so – and, and, and she's, she's one of the best at working with, uh, with kids, too. And, and, you know, this issue of being able to wind down and, and slow your mind down. Actually, honestly, most of the problems that people have, and this gets into sort of her comment, and also, and also you know, some, some of the other things that, that were brought up, is this issue that when, when people want to go into bed and get to sleep, but we tend not to appreciate the process that that requires. So, for example, if you're driving in your car and you need to take an exit on the highway and you're approaching the exit at full speed and then you don't tap on the brake until you're at the exit, you're going to miss your exit. Um, or you're going to turn the wheel so hard you're going to flip your car. Um, and that's not your car's fault. There's nothing wrong with the road. There's nothing wrong with your car. You just didn't give yourself enough time to break. And that's what a lot of people do with their sleep is that they, they go, 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 and then they distract themselves with TV or something. And so they never actually have time to really actually wind down. So they never tap on the brake until they're already in bed and they're still going and it takes time to wind down. And you don't want that wind down process to be in bed because, again, that's going to train you to be awake in bed. That's going to create an insomnia. You want to program that wind down period out of bed. So like when you were talking about getting out of bed and doing some work, um, work for some people is a terrible thing to do because it gets you going. For some people, if you're clearing out your inbox, that might be a great activity to do as long as the lights are low and you're not suppressing too much melatonin or whatever. Um, it's a good, could be a good, relatively mindless activity 
that can give you that space to wind down. That, I think, is the biggest problem. For some people, it's reading. Reading would be great. Um, for some people, reading isn't great. It depends on what it is for you. But you want to make sure you give yourself enough time to wind down. Um, you know, turn the TV off, put the screen down a while before, um, or do whatever it is you need to do so that when you get to your exit, you don't, you're not going to either miss your exit or flip your car. You're going to be able to take it at a decent speed and not have people yelling at you or grabbing the handle on the side of the car or whatever else the metaphor will call for. You know what I mean? You said guided meditation for sleep. My yeah. go-to is the 10% happier app. I don't know. Do you have, do you have a go-to for guided meditation? Um, I just do something myself where it's where it's a combination of breathing and and some some visualizations that I do that I, that I know works for me that 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 I do but that's geared more toward my own personality and 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 my own thing. I mean, you know, for some people, having a a an externally guided meditation can be great because it can be a great combination of helping you to relax when you're doing it. And also a little bit of distracting where it gets your mind off of whatever you're on. There's a big difference between relaxation and distraction. Relaxation is an active process. Um, it's like working out. Um, it's an active process. Distraction is a passive process. Relaxation actively reduces muscle tension and breathing rate and heart rate and things like that. Um, distraction doesn't. Um, what distraction does is it mostly hits pause on those things, but it gives you some space from whatever it was you were thinking about. And so you can use those judiciously, but don't confuse the two. They're two actually very different things. Uh, distraction won't relax you. Um, it, it'll just it'll just pause if, if you're actually very active. Let me bring you up to speed on where I am, and, and then it'll put everything into context for you. And this will also be kind of an interesting uh, primer for people who are new to the podcast as well, because those people are showing up all the time. So I had blamed... 30 years of what I labeled as insomnia um, on the fact that for 30 years I've been doing a morning radio show and my alarm goes off at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning and I have a terrible time falling asleep, um, which also means that naps are out of the question because it takes me so long to fall asleep so I can't nap during the day. And I've been functioning for the last 30 years on average of about four or five hours a night according to the various trackers that I had at my disposal. So I go to Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. I go and I do a sleep test. They tell me I've got restless leg syndrome. Mm. So I start the medication for the restless leg syndrome. Instantly, my Fitbit Versa credits me for getting three additional hours of sleep a night. It's the three hours that it claimed I was you know, tossing and turning. Um, but even at the end of all of that, so uh, yay, three extra hours of sleep every night, but it's really lousy quality sleep. And so mm. as I get to the stage of trying to solve this problem, um, I figured that one of the things I should do is evaluate whether or not I've got the right wearable technology and whether there's something better out there or where we are. So, that's kind of an on your market set go for you because I know this is a topic that's right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, so uh, um, I guess I'll go. Um, so I think that it's great that you've been doing that and it's great that you did exactly the right thing eventually, um, which was 
if you're worried about your sleep, if there's something about your sleep that you think is broken, you take it to someone who might know how to fix it. Um, sometimes we, we often try and fix it ourselves, and, and often we do a pretty good job. But when you come up against a wall, you did the exact right thing, and you went to a specialist who know, knew what they were talking about, knew what questions to ask, knew how to do the evaluation, and got you a diagnosis that actually made a difference. And the thing about restless legs is it's more common than people think, and a lot of people think about restless legs as, as sort of a joke disorder um, because it's it actually doesn't even occur when you're asleep. It mostly just occurs when you're awake and, and makes it have a hard time to fall asleep. But it seems like the, the symptoms just seem a little bit um, incredulous. But it turns out, actually, it was restless leg syndrome that had the first successful genetic mapping of a sleep disorder. It is, it is actually a real condition, um, and it, it involves neuromuscular control, and it can wreak havoc with people's sleep, and it can be treated very successfully. Um, so that's great that you did that. So the first thing I want to say is that's exactly what you should do. And everyone out there who's wearing a wearable and the data from that wearable is bothering you and you try all the typical things to fix it, go talk to a sleep specialist. And to be totally honest, a large portion of them don't know what to do with wearable data anyway, but it doesn't matter. It gave you the information you needed to know that something might not be right you go and talk to them, they'll ask you the right questions, they'll do the right assessments, and they might get it fixed. Um, whether or not they even use the wearable data, sometimes they will. Um, but I, I think that's a very important point. And the other important point that I want to make is the thing about these wearables is there's, there's this a little bit of confusion about them where, where people tend to think that either they're crap and don't measure anything useful or they go the other extreme and think, well, this is exactly what my sleep is. It told me I got 47 and a half minutes of REM sleep, and what does that mean? And, you know, actually the truth is in the middle. You know, the, the, the devices that are out there commercially, first of all, they're not all the same. Some may be better than others, uh, and, and that changes constantly. So I, I don't even want to say one better than another because who knows next week there might be another new one. But... The key is some of them have been rigorously tested and some of them haven't. And unfortunately, as a consumer, it's hard to know which is which. Um, but to be fair, most of the ones that are using movement alone are probably going to give you between um, an 80 and 85% degree of accuracy on a minute-to-minute -minute basis as to whether you're awake or asleep. If you're talking about a device that's in an app that's sitting on your bed, that's measuring movement of your bed, but it's not something you're wearing. Um, if it's, you know, there's some that sort of go under your mattress, those can be pretty good. If it's just sitting on top of your pillow, those are probably not very good. Um, if it's got added heart rate data in there, it probably is, is slightly better. Um, but either way, it's all ballpark. It's all a ballpark also with the assumption that it, what it's looking at is relatively normal sleep. Now, if you have a sleep disorder like sleep apnea or restless legs or even insomnia, the ability of the trackers to accurately guess whether you're awake or asleep becomes a little weaker um, because it, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're giving it information that it's not quite sure what to do with, and so it, it hits the gray area where it becomes a little less accurate. 
But at least you know if you see information that might maybe doesn't make sense or, or seems a little extreme, just talk to the doctor about it, and you'll see if you have a sleep disorder. If you do, well, that might explain the, the information that, that seems um, not what you expected. But it also might explain it. So when I went for my sleep study, um, we found yeah. out that my – and I don't – I mean these numbers sound off the charts to me. I don't know if this is garden variety restless leg syndrome, uh, but there's the term periodic limb movements, right? Um, I yeah. had – Those are, those are actually have, different from restless legs. Restless legs, they often go together, but they're two different things. Restless legs, for people listening – this is when um, you have this uncomfortable sensation in your limbs, usually legs. It's worse at night, especially when you're trying to relax, especially when you're trying to lay down, uh, and you feel the need. You need to move them. It's not like an involuntary muscle movement. It's that it's this feeling that you need to move them. Some people talk about it like a creepy crawly feeling or an uncomfortable feeling. And when you get up and move around, the feeling goes away until you sort of settle back in again. Periodic right. limb movements are different. These occur during sleep. Um, these are actually sort of involuntary twitches in your legs that occur in a rhythmic way um, across the night. You're not conscious when they happen. They don't feel uncomfortable. They just twitch. Um, and they often do go together. They both um, likely involve similar neuromuscular pathways, uh, but they are actually two different things. I was having 82 of those periodic limb wow. movements per per hour. Wow, um, that's a lot. That's high. Now that I'm now that I'm on this medication, my wife says it's like sleeping with a different person. I don't know that that's a review I was looking to get. Um, <laughs> but you know, I'll I'll, I'll take it. Um, so I mean, so for me, and you talk about you know the ballpark estimate. For me, that first two or three hours when my um, my restless legs and my periodic limb movements are at their worst. That's just time that Fitbit says, I don't know what's going on right now. Screw it. I'm going to write this down as awake. Um, and so I would wake up in the morning and I would see, oh my gosh, I got two hours and 40 minutes of sleep last night. I'm going to be in a right. coma by lunchtime. Um, right. but it's just that yeah, it was I getting mean, what, data what from my body that I didn't know what to do with fed information that, um, that it wasn't really set up for. And so it got, it was, it was fed movement where there shouldn't really be movement in sleep. So that, that's why these things are not quite as accurate for people who have sleep disorders. Um, because when you think about it, you know, it's pretty good at telling wake versus sleep based on movement and also based on heart rate. But if you have a situation where the movement and, and maybe also the heart rate information that it's getting is systematically different from normal, um, it's going to be systematically less accurate for that same reason because it's, it's, you're feeding it information that is confusing. And so you're going to get back um, a result that is, that, that's confused. That's all. Um, for most people with relatively typical sleep, it, it should actually look generally right with, with a couple of caveats. Number one, people will notice much more time awake during the night than they remember. That's totally normal. Um, a totally healthy 25-year-old with no medical history in a sleep lab will wake up an average of 10 to 20 times a night. They just won't remember. They're very short. They're very brief, usually just a few seconds, and then you go back down. 
That's totally fine. That you wake up during the night is not the problem. And that number of awakenings goes up as we get older. But we still should only really remember one to three awakenings per night. Well, maybe a little more than that if, if we're older. But that should be about normal. Um, you shouldn't remember these 20 awakenings you have during the night. But if you look at your tracing, you're probably going to see them. If the device is accurate, it'll show them. If you don't see any of those little awakenings, it means there's a problem with the device or it's just not telling you because it should be there. Um, but you don't freak out about it. That's normal. Um, the other important thing is that a tracker will tell you you got less sleep probably than you remember. Um, in that case, it's, it's partially because it's picking up all those little awakenings that you, don't, that you didn't experience. Um, but that's a, it's totally normal for there to be a difference between 30 and 60 minutes between how much sleep you feel like you got and how much sleep the tracker says you got. And that's actually not anything I would worry about as a sleep clinician, which is why in research, when we do research on sleep, we have people do both. We track their sleep by their experience, but also by the tracker um, or, or some other device. And we see it as two different sources of information that are measuring two different experiences that are related to each other, but they're not supposed to be the same thing. Um, and that's just because sleep is a complicated process. And, and the fact that they don't agree actually isn't really that much of a problem. Um, they should be close, though. So is it fair to say um, that, you know, the majority of the sleep trackers that are out there, whether they're the ones that sit on your mattress, under your mattress, a wearable that you put on your wrist, a wearable that you put on your ankle, whatever – is it fair to say that they are tracking data that is meant to be interpreted for normal sleepers? I would say by and large. Um, the, the movement alone um, has actually been used in sleep disorders for decades. I mean, it, it, it's just a, a sleep scientist knows that there's going to be some systematic differences. And if you want to apply a single algorithm scoring to everybody – if the, the further your sleep deviates from sort of normal sleep, the more likely it's going to look um, abnormal. The devices actually can tell sleep versus wake relatively well. The commercial devices, though, might not be quite as good. The ones that you can just buy in a store might not be quite as good as what we can get for a lab. But it doesn't mean the technology is not there. It just means that um, these devices just aren't quite there yet for abnormal sleep yet. So in your experience, how are these and, – and let's just – for a second, let's pretend that we're going to walk into a Best Buy. Yeah. Um, and, and Best Buy, you know, there's no promotional considerations. That's just the name that popped into my head. Um, <laughs> so we're going to walk into Best Buy and we're going to grab a sleep tracker today. Unless you happen to know of one and you can throw out a brand name, which is great if you can, but if not, that's cool too. Is there one out there that you're aware of or are there any – that are doing a decent job at interpreting stages of sleep. We know the ones that'll tell me whether, like for example, my my Fitbit Versa, um, it claims that I'm getting you know 18 percent REM sleep and four or five percent deep sleep and 60 something percent light sleep every night. Is there research or any evidence that suggests that those numbers are are even close to accurate, or is it just kind of doing the best job it can? Yeah, the devices that are out that have published data on the sleep staging, to my knowledge, um, the only ones that are out there that are published are Fitbit, Aura, which is a ring, um, 
and Sleep Score, which is a device that sits by the bedside. There might be others, but off the top of my head, those are the ones. Uh, oh, and also WatchPad, but that's more of a clinical device. Um, to my knowledge, those are really the ones that have been able to do sleep stages somewhat well. And when I say somewhat well, again, it's ballpark. Um, and that uh, if, your, if your device gives you feedback about sleep stages that worries you, um, and you don't have any problems because of it, probably don't worry. If it's worrying you, talk to a doctor about it. What, this, what, what any sleep doctor will probably tell you is they actually don't care very much about sleep stages. Um, most people, the, the people who tend to care a lot about sleep stages are either neuroscientists who study it in a laboratory and are understanding how they work, um, or people who are sort of over-interpreting some of the information. Where, where You can get some decent information from sleep stages, but I wouldn't worry about the details of them. So worrying about your makeup of sleep stages is a lot like worrying about the makeup of the air that you're breathing. And so saying, am I getting enough deep sleep? My device is saying I'm not getting enough deep sleep. Um, that's like saying, well, am I getting enough oxygen when I breathe? And and as a clinician, I would say, okay, well, why do you think you're not? It's like, well, I have a device that says, like, maybe I'm not. I'm like, okay, well, do you have a lung disease where your lungs aren't functioning normal? I'm like, no, okay. Do you live in a highly polluted area where, like, the air quality is really bad? No. Okay. Well, if you don't have an obvious reason in your environment why you should be getting less oxygen or do you live on the top of a mountain, you know, if none of those situations apply, you know what, your body is probably handling it okay and your blood oxygen level is fine, you're probably fine. Um, and sleep stages are the same way where there's no exact number of, of makeup of sleep stages you have to get or should get. Um, the, the sleep stages in the real world we know actually very little about how they're even remotely useful. They're very useful in a laboratory. It's just up until very recently, and this technology existed, the only way to study sleep stages is in a laboratory, which costs thousands of dollars a night. And so getting data over time and in a real-world setting, I mean, these are the sorts of things that, we, you know, what good is the data? What is it? Is it telling us anything actually interesting and useful? Um, jury's still kind of out. So if you're seeing that you're getting, for example, a little deep sleep or little REM or too much of something, think, you know, the question would be, is there an obvious reason why? Well, okay, I'm not getting any deep sleep. Okay, do you have chronic pain? Do you maybe have untreated sleep apnea? Do you have something that's keeping your sleep artificially shallow? Well, if not, and that's all your body's taking, then maybe that's all it needs. And maybe it is actually getting more, it's just not getting picked up by the device. These devices, even the good ones, they're between probably between 60 and 70% accurate minute-to-minute uh, minute as to wh whether you're in those stages. So, Interesting. Um, so, you know, it could be off. You could be someone for whom the device is really accurate. You could be someone for whom the device is missing something important. And actually, there's no good way that I know of to tell the difference. Um, some people, they ju it just tends to be better at, at, you know, reading your body signals. You know, it's hard to know. I wouldn't worry about the sleep stages unless you're experiencing a symptom, and that could be a clue. So when someone says, oh, I'm really, I think I sleep enough, but... I feel really fatigued. 
there's a good way that I, the use of looking at the sleep stages data where I can see, huh, your sleep stages data shows that your sleep is generally pretty darn shallow. The exact number of minutes, I don't care about that. The overall picture is of, of a shallow, fragmented sleep. Even if you were sleeping through the night, something's keeping you up. Something's keeping your sleep shallow. Maybe it's a medical condition. Maybe it's an environmental thing. Let's figure that out. Does that make sense? That does make sense, and and you opened about 17 avenues that I want to explore. We're probably only going to time to run down a couple of tributaries here, so let me throw one at you because when you talk about the sleep stages – um, one of the things that um, Mark Boulos, my, my sleep specialist from Sunnybrook here in Toronto, um, he and I talked about the amount of time I spend in, I guess, what's labeled as N3 sleep. Yeah. Um, and he was telling me that for people my age – uh, and for people to sort of fit my demography, um, I should probably be looking at somewhere around 18 to 20 percent in N3, and I get 1 percent on average in N3, which he said uh, at the time uh, is, is pretty low. And his understanding and mine, too, at the time is N3 is one of those stages that the research into things like the glymphatic system would yep. suggest – are good at helping your brain sort of maintain itself, but that's that's a process that basically only tends to kick in during N three sleep. So, is it is it the difference between the sleep stages that we see in the lab? Like, for example, there's not a how do I word this question right? If I hear what you're saying correctly, there's not a wearable that we can buy that will tell us whether or not we're in N one, N two, N three. It comes up with sort of the commercialized, dumbed down version of it that it labels as REM, light, or deep. Um, it's it's almost. So am I close? Um, it, it, yeah. It's, it, so what they're labeling as light is N one and two. Deep would be N three, and then REM would be REM. Um, and they were developed with polysomnography. I mean, that's that's how these algorithms are. Uh, validated against in lab measures. But again, you're, it's mostly based on how heart rate variability changes across different states, and it's it's imprecise. I mean, the fact that you can get 60 to 70 to 75% accurate um, about what's going on in the outer layers of the cortex in terms of neuronal synchrony by looking at changes in heart rate at the wrist um, is pretty darn amazing. Um, but of course, it's not going to be perfect. Um, but what you got in the lab, I would trust that a little more. Um, because that was a direct, a more of a direct measure of, of sleep stages. So, and 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 he's right that for most people, you would expect a greater percentage of the night in deep sleep, and that that N three deep sleep is important for a lot of these functions. Um, however, there's there's a couple of issues that reasons why I, I I'm not I wouldn't be as alarmed. One is that. If you're not generally the main cause of people getting less N3 deep slow wave sleep that that um, they may they may want to get to is first of all there's usually some sort of obvious barrier whether it's whether it's an untreated sleep apnea whether it was RLS maybe it was something that was in the way um, one thing that's very commonly in the way especially in a sleep lab is being sleeping in an unfamiliar environment will systematically <laughs> reduce how much N3 sleep is going to show up. 
Um, we, everyone knows this. It's called first night effect. And um, the only reason we don't do two nights in a lab um, for clinic reasons is, one, no insurance company wants to pay for it, and two, nobody wants to sleep in a lab two nights in a row. But for research, we usually throw out the first night's worth of data because we don't trust the, the N3 sleep on the first night because it's going to be systematically altered. Um, that said, um, there might be other things going on. I mean, as, as people get older, we tend to, to do less. Um, is it because we need less or is it because our body is, is less able to? That's an open question. Um, but usually your body will take it if it can and it needs to. Um, so that's, that's why I'm a little less worried. There are ways of, of potentially with drugs and stuff of increasing stage and three sleep, but it might be hard to do. And it's not even clear if, if it actually causes the benefits that people are looking for. Um, and then with your other question about a wearable, currently there's no wearable that measures the brainwave activity to get a better accurate estimate of the sleep staging. But I'm sure those are going to be coming. So I want to, um, you know, every once in a while, if you're watching a television show and one of the characters on the show wants to just break character, they call it the fourth wall and they just want to talk to the audience for a second. I'm going to do that right here um, and I'm going to pretend you're not there for 10 seconds. Um, What Michael is talking about with that first night of sleep data, it's fascinating because my sleep specialist, uh, Mark Bulos, is one of the people that was sort of at the front of a study uh, that you can look up the details at a website that's uh, psgnorms.com, psgnorms.com. And what that is, is it's a a meta-analysis of hundreds of thousands of sleep studies where they have taken the first night data and compared it to the second night data. So you can punch in your gender, your age, and whether it's a first night or second night, and you see what over these hundreds of thousands of sleep studies um, is normal data on a first night, and then you can compare that to the second night. And it's exactly what Michael's talking about with that first night effect. And it's a fascinating website, psgnorms.com. Um, to come back to, and and now you're officially back, Michael. Um, <laughs> I, there's a, I, I feel like, and I'm hesitant to even bring this up because I, I don't want to cast any aspersions on the wearables industry uh, because right. they're, they're, they're fine folk. But somebody said this to me and it's stuck. And I, I promised that when I talk to someone much smarter than I, which is most people, um, I would get an answer on this. Somebody suggested to me that with all of the different algorithms for analyzing the data that comes back from wearables and you say, you know, the 65 to 70 percent accuracy, that there is a certain amount of gamification of sleep going on. And that much the same way that as we continue to learn more about social media, we start to find out that Facebook was deliberately built in such a way as to be addictive so that you if you start there are people out there that if they spend more than half an hour away from Facebook, they get twitchy. Um, and so there are people that are saying that, you know, some of the the sleep tracking in these apps and wearables and things like that could be better, but it's just good enough right now to get you hooked and to wait for the next device to come out so that you will run to the store and buy it just in case the sleep tracking is better. What do you think of that statement? Um, I think I think that 
that's a statement that a reasonable person could make. I, I've, one thing I want to clarify is the accuracy. The 65%, 70% is for the staging. The whether you were awake or asleep, that's probably closer to 90%. Um, between, probably between 80 and 90%. Um, the, the more normal your sleep is, the closer to 90% accuracy it probably is. So just, just to clear that up, it's actually a little better than people think. Um, but... You know, I don't know. I don't know everyone at all the different companies. Um, of the people that I've talked to who work in development of these things, I've never heard anything of that. Um, I've never heard anyone. I mean, what is, you know, who tells me anything? But um, I, I don't think that's the case, mostly because, first of all, the rates, so the scientists who are trying to develop their own algorithms and things are doing the best they can to get as accurate as possible. And with devices that have been around for 10, 20 years that we've been tweaking and using in the lab, the best we can get is 85 to 90% minute-to-minute accuracy on these devices. And when you take a device off the shelf and you put it to the same test, um, if it's a device that's been, you know, if, it, if it's one of the ones for, for whom there's data out there, that actually is not unlike what you would expect to see. You'd expect to see something like 85 to 90% minute-to-minute accuracy. So the fact that it's in about the same ballpark shows me that they're, 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 the fact that it's so close to a much more expensive scientific-grade device, if anything, tells sort of the opposite story of they're actually doing a pretty darn good job um, at, at getting these getting this estimation as good as it can be. I mean, in the real world, we might have higher standards of things being perfectly accurate. But in the scientific field, um, it's, not a, it's hard to measure things sometimes. And when you're measuring things that are hard to measure, like sleep, that you have to, it's not about getting the perfect measure. It's about knowing the limitations of the measurement you're taking, knowing what, what it, it's good at and what it's bad at. And and, and measuring things from multiple angles at a time. So like I said, when we do research, we measure sleep three or four different ways, this being one of them. Knowing that it's imperfect, it's just, it, it's the best that we can make it. Um, so I would, I, I would say that, yeah, it sometimes probably seems that way, but my guess is, at least with the decent devices that are out there, their accuracy is so close to the best we could do in the lab um, it, I, I don't. I don't think they're deliberately trying to make things uh, less accurate. Um, if and in terms of making it more engaging, um, I would say that a lot of these devices um, are are probably trying to do that. I mean, if I were making a device, I would want it to be as engaging as possible. Especially if I thought sleep was important and I thought I can get people thinking about their sleep every day. I, I'd love to figure out a way to do that. Um, however. Actually, I think there's a problem in a lot of these devices, and it's that they confuse measurement with help. Um, that they, they, what they're promising is will help you sleep better, but what all they're doing is they're measuring your sleep. Uh, and just like a bathroom scale is not a weight loss program, measurement is not intervention. Measurement is not treatment. Uh, measurement just tells you stuff. And even if it's the best, most most bells and whistles ever on a bathroom scale. It's still just a bathroom scale. It's up to you to make the changes. And if it's going to help you, um, it's going to need to give you feedback. It's going to need to um, work with you in your life. 
as opposed to just spit out the same information every day. Because I can imagine if you're not sleeping well and you wake up and like, oh, here's another reminder I'm not sleeping well. And then I wake <laughs> up again and here's another one and nothing changes. You know, you're probably not going to want to stick with that device because you already know it's going to say. I'm going to follow that train of thought for a second uh, and and express something that I think I might have said to you by email when you when you start talking about you know these ballpark estimates and all these things and and it actually leads to what I guess might be my final question. Um, I have a friend who was uh, in the weight loss industry. And he was talking about all these, you know, scales that, you know, you step on them and they will calculate your your body fat percentage and all these different things. And then there's BMI out there and there's all these different things that are supposed to be this this uh, barometer of your you know current level of fitness. And he said the only body fat test that is 100 percent accurate is called an autopsy. And he doesn't <laughs> recommend it for the casual weight loss patient. And so I guess that kind of brings us back to because everything short of an autopsy is an estimate and and how close you want to get whether you go you know into the water tank or whether you go for calipers where they pinch you in you know four or five different sites or whether you use bmi whatever it is the further away you get from an autopsy the less reliable your results are going to be but how reliable do you need them and so i guess the question becomes if 65 to 70% uh, on your sleep staging and 85 to 90% on whether you're awake or asleep isn't good enough for you, then you probably should have gone to a sleep lab by now. Yeah. If it's that big of a deal, talk to a sleep doc and, and see if, if, if you're worried, they'll ask you the right questions. Even if, you know, there's, there's a big movement in the field to embrace wearable data and there's also a big movement to not even know what to do with it. Either way, they know the right questions to ask. If you're a good candidate for a sleep study, they'll schedule one and hopefully your insurance company will pay for one. But then, you know, that's another problem. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the thing about measurement is people tend to confuse precision with accuracy. Um, just because something's very precise doesn't mean it's accurate. And, and embracing the fuzziness of it might actually improve your ability to make judgments. So one of the things I tell my patients is when, I, when I'm tracking their sleep over time, you know, I don't look at each individual minute on each individual day. No, we average it together and we look at overall patterns and trends. We're not, we're not micromanaging each minute and each awakening because they don't matter. It's the big picture that matters, but they say, and then they say, well, you know, I'm looking at the, using tracker data or using a, a diary or something, but aren't there biases and, and, and stuff? And I say, yeah, of course there are, but I would much rather a fuzzy picture that's true than a clear picture that's inaccurate. And if I look at, into the details, I'm, I'm focusing on the weeds when I, I'm missing the big picture and the weeds might be misleading because I know that there's, there's always a level of uncertainty because sleep Sleep doesn't exist at the wrist. Well, it exists at the wrist, but it doesn't, it's not controlled by the wrist. It, it's not regulated by the wrist. It's also not even regulated by the cortex. So with, with polysomnography, it's also just an estimate. Sleep-wake centers are deep in the brain. And unless you're implanting electrodes deep into someone's brain, and I don't advise it, uh, you're not actually measuring sleep itself. You're measuring something downstream of something downstream of something downstream of what sleep is. And because of that, 
you have to embrace the idea that no measurement is going to be perfect. And as a scientist, we know this. And so what we do is we calculate reliability, and then we, we make judgments recognizing the limitations of our measures, as opposed to saying, well, it said 47 minutes, and then this day it said 46, which means I must have slept one less. To me, it means, well, those are so, or all sort of within the margin of error. It probably didn't change, or it didn't change meaningfully. So, um, so okay, and, and to, to bring this whole conversation full circle, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you this week in particular is because I, I've kind of done a lot of the science stuff that needed to get done at the beginning of this process for me to go and get the sleep study, to go and and figure out that it was restless leg, get on the meds, see what I'm like on the meds. And, and, you know, now that my wife anecdotally is telling me that I sleep like a rock, I don't move at all for the entire course of the night, at least that not that she's aware of, which is a huge improvement from her waking up with bruises on her shins in the morning from me having kicked her. Um, so I'm at the stage now where I kind of come back around to the original mission of what the snooze button is all about because eventually everything that's in these podcasts get is going to get rolled into a book where the book will hopefully shed some light for people who are having sleep issues um you know and, and I want to try and start start going through you know, the various hacks that people have, whether it's melatonin or weighted blankets or whatever it is. And if those things need to be thoroughly debunked, then I get to be the guy who debunks them. But in order to be able to debunk those things or to suggest that, hey, this one worked for me, maybe it will work for you too. I needed to be at a place where I could sort of establish a baseline and then be able to track my progress. So let me pose this hypothesis and you tell me whether or not, even as a lay person, there's sure. enough usable data going to come back from this that people might benefit. My current theory is I want to talk to people who, for whatever reason, um, sometimes face sleep challenges. Look, a few days ago, we had Dan Schulman on from ESPN, who is the guy whose voice you hear on the radio for playoff baseball. Uh, you know, if you're listening to a baseball game on the radio, that's Dan Schulman's voice coming back at you on ESPN. And he is frequently in five different cities in a week covering sports that happen all over the clock and his sleep can sometimes be a mess. So I want to find out from Dan Schulman, what's your thing on a night when you have trouble falling asleep? What do you do? You know, I want to talk to uh, CEOs and high achievers and people who do incredible things, astronauts, for example, find out how you fall asleep under challenging circumstances. Then when they give me their tip, I want to try that for a couple of weeks and see if that works for me. Now, if I'm going about it that way, am I looking at it as as maybe my Fitbit is going to be able to tell me whether or not my sleep is markedly improved? For example, if I spend two weeks where the only thing I'm doing differently is taking melatonin, is, is the data I'm getting back from my Fitbit good enough to tell me whether it's making a difference? That is actually an excellent question. Um, and... And to paraphrase, what you're saying, what you're asking is, given, you know, acknowledging any kind of caveats in terms of measurement accuracy that, that is good enough or whatever, um, can it at least track change? Um, my guess is probably. Um, 
as long if that change was meaningful, it probably will be able to demonstrate it. I mean, it did when you got treated for restless legs. Um, and it usually, usually the data show that even, for example, um, risk-based movement sleep detection has problems in insomnia because people tend to lay in bed awake, not moving. Um, but you can actually use it to track treatment progression in insomnia, and it'll it'll document change within that person. So my guess is probably um, what I would do if it were me, um, and I were I were running this as a research study, I would use the wearable data in addition to a daily sleep diary um, because they both pick up different things, and you might see it in one and not the other. Um, and with a daily sleep diary, what that means is every morning – you just jot down. I mean, I, and I can, you know, I can send you one that we use in clinic. Um, I have one online, but it's basically going through the timeline of the night. You in the morning, you go back and you jot down what time did you get into bed? What time did you start trying to fall asleep? How long do you think it took you? How many times did you wake up for a total of how long? When did you wake up for the last time? And when did you get out of bed? And then usually I also ask people, oh, just rate your sleep overall. How do you feel in the morning? Did you take any naps? What medications did you take? Just so we can track it. Um, but that perception of the timeline of the night is a great complement to tracker data. Everyone wants the tracker data because it's passive. Um, and this other thing requires one to two minutes of work every morning. But, um, and it's a pain in the butt to do after you do it for a week or two, you know, you kind of want to be done. But it, it provides really, really valuable information. And so if I were you, I'd do both. Here's um, one of the things that I like about that approach is I'm looking forward to the day and, you know, I, I understand that I got the restless leg thing wrong and, and my self-diagnosis of insomnia wrong. Um, but one thing I haven't gotten wrong is that, and I'm trying not to get emotional as I say this, um, I don't remember, Michael, the last time I woke up in the morning and felt refreshed. That's yeah. been at that's been at least thirty years since I woke up in the morning and felt ah uh, you know that that uh, the, the the getting out of bed and having the good stretch that's at the beginning of every fast food breakfast commercial um, I, like I never have that feeling I've ne- I I don't even remember ever having experienced that so the day that I can write that down in a sleep journal um, yeah. I'm thrilled you know. Um, so I, I will absolutely take that to heart and, um, I, I appreciate the advice. I appreciate the input. Hopefully I can pick your brain once in a while and throw some stuff at you to see if it sticks. You know where to find me. There you go. Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona. All the info on him is in the show notes. You do want to follow him on things like Twitter and whatnot because uh, he is just a fountain of amazing knowledge in the sleep world. Quick reminder, you can get to our website, thesnoozebutton.com, not only for the show notes, but also for the contest page. We're always giving away something. Uh, you can leave a question for our panel of experts easy way for you to rate and review the show. Leave us your feedback as well. There's links there to all our social media profiles. Not only do we link to the episodes and give you updates on when they're out, but we also tweet out a whole pile of information on various studies that have been done. And so a ton of useful info on sleep comes from our social media accounts, both on Instagram 
and Twitter and Facebook. The handle for all of those is Get Your Snooze On, but details waiting for you on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. I don't expect you to remember any of this, so it's all sitting there on our website. There's even a place that you can go to uh, donate if you want to help keep the doors open and keep the show commercial free. You can do that as well. Plus, remember if you're crunched for time but you're digging the information, nine minute versions of every episode are available on a slightly different podcast called The Snooze Button Express. Back with more show next week. Until then, my name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?